Hello, and welcome to Live Like the World is Dying, your podcast for what feels like the end times. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy, and I use she or they pronouns. And this week, I'm talking to Jason about what is involved in building resilient cities, like not just resilient homesteads or whatever, but like what it, what are the actual sort of engineering steps that cities can and usually aren't taking to mitigate the effects of climate change. And we talk a lot more about other things besides and his take on how climate change is going and what we might do about it or not do about it. And I think you'll get a lot out of it. I really enjoyed this conversation. This podcast is a proud member of the Channel Zero Network of Anarchist Podcasts. And here's a jingle from another show in the network. Na, 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 na. One, two, one, two. Tune in for another episode of Marooncast. Marooncast is a down-to-earth black radical podcast for the people. Our host, hip-hop anarchist Simile the RBG, and sex educator and crochet artist KLC share their reflections on maroons, rebellions, womanism, life, culture, community, trap liberation, and everyday ratchetness. They deliver fresh commentary with the queer, transgender, non-conforming, fierce, funny, southern girls, anti-imperialist, anti-oppression approach. Poly ad and bullshit. Check out episodes of Marooncast on Channel Zero Network, Buzzsprout, SoundCloud, Google, Apple, and Spotify. All power to the people, all pleasure to the people. Peace. Hi, uh, could you introduce yourself with your, your name, your pronouns, and then a little bit of your background in what we're going to be talking about today? Uh, sure. So my name is Jason Sauer, pronouns he, him, uh, although I'm not picky. Um, and I... My background is in, it's like somewhere between climate change and like adaptation research is how I would mm-hmm. describe it. So uh, most of my work is focused on adapting cities to extreme weather events, either in the present day context or looking at the future of uh, the climate for the region and figuring out how what we need to change and how best to change it in order to keep places livable. And I'm I'm so excited to ask you about all that stuff because I think that <laughs> so much of what people talk about preparedness or even like mitigation kind of forgets this level of scale. Either people talk about like saving the world, like stopping climate change, which I, I that yeah. ship mm-hmm. is kind of passed, or people will talk about like how to, you know, either you have your like bunker mentality people who are like, oh, I'm just going to hole up with food, or you have even the people who are like, you know, well, me and my ten friends on a farm are going to somehow ride it all out. And I think that there isn't enough that it talks about this level that you're talking about on the sort of like community or city wide level. And so I guess, I mean, my main question is like, what do resilient cities look like? How do, how do we build resilient cities? So, I mean, good question. Uh, It's somewhat like a temporal issue, like thinking about, are we looking for resilient cities for for now, given the present conditions, which we're still not great at managing? Are we looking at it for like 20 years in the future? Are we looking at it, you know, in the more deep uncertain or deeply uncertain, like, you know, by 2080, 2100, whatever, or even beyond, although I've never Mm -hmm. really heard anyone seriously engage any sort of growth beyond like 2080. Uh, I don't know why that's the limit, but that is the limit. So <laughs> I actually had to pull up the academic definition of resilience. Uh, that's probably mm-hmm. that I think is probably the most accurate um, version of, of what myself and my colleagues 
are kind of looking at. And since this is behind a paywall anyway, I figured it might be kind of interesting to even bring up what the academic definition is uh, yeah. in this context. And so this comes from a paper by one of my colleagues here at Arizona State University, where I'm a PhD candidate. Uh, hopefully soon a doctor, but we'll see. So one of my colleagues, Sarah Miro, um, and two other authors, Joshua Newell and Lisa Stoltz, wrote this paper on defining urban resilience in particular. So resilience in the the city and urban context. Um, and so the specific definition they use is like urban resilience refers to the ability of an urban system and all its constituent socio-ecological and socio-technical networks across temporal and spatial scales to maintain or rapidly return to desired functions in the face of a disturbance to adapt to change and to quickly transform systems that limit current or future adaptive capacity. There's a lot of, I don't know, generations of resilience thinking that have kind of been packed into that sort of definition, Mm -hmm. but it's kind of just looking at making cities or making it so that the people in cities and the systems in cities, once impacted by like an extreme weather event or, or from climate change, can respond appropriately in terms of like the the type of response and then also like the the amount of time it takes for that response to sort of happen. And then also to allow for sort of this concept of like transformative change of like you can build a city that is relatively resilient now, but it's not necessarily going to be resilient in the future. So you need to, Mm -hmm. when you're building these systems, allow for the possibility of the thinking to change or for climate change, you know, the effects to become more fully realized and be like, okay, so we did not plan for this sort of contingency. We need to be able to um, adapt to that basically. Um, And so every city, it looks different. You know, so I live here in Phoenix, Arizona. Most of my research isn't focused here, but I mean, this is a a desert city and we are kind of juggling the dual problems of extreme heat in the summer and of course, like major water limitations, which are increasingly becoming a problem. And so resilience here is largely focused on basically counteracting like the the extreme heat that we're facing. Uh, I mean, it gets up to like 120 degrees a couple days a year sometimes. Mm -hmm. And what is it? Actually, I can give some quick stats on that. So I think we are currently over 100 days a year where we have, have a maximum temperature of above 100 degrees. And then by like 20... 50 2060 something like that it's going to be 180 days a year of over 100 degrees which is like (laughs) i mean we're already at 100 now so i guess it's not like that unthinkable but Mm -hmm. you know it's really tough to imagine like what that's going to be like and then of course like you know average temperature is going to rise but then also potentially the extreme temperatures are going to rise so the city is really concerned about keeping this place viable in in many different respects, uh, given our current extreme heat, but then also the projections of extreme future heat. And so like, you know, for example, I think the city of Phoenix is planning on increasing its tree canopy cover, you know, to like provide increased shade, um, particularly in like critical areas, by which I mean like public transportation networks. So like, you know, there's not a whole lot of structures for, for shade out here. Um, Mm -hmm. and so 
you know, like a job of someone like me working in resilience would be like, okay, so you want to increase shade, like here's where you need to do it. And that's along like public transportation networks, things like that, where people are relatively exposed to like this extreme heat and sunlight during the worst months. And you can either do that through like built structures, or you can do it through tree shade. And uh, if the city of Phoenix wants to pursue tree shade, then they also need to balance that with their like water needs. So more trees means more water. And so then you start getting into this discussion about like, well, which trees provide the most shade and the least amount of water, you know, (laughs) this is the sort of like nuanced discussion that the city and people in the Academy are kind of having uh, about this sort of issue. Hey, this is a, a kind of an aside, but have you read The Water Knife, this novel about Phoenix? It's on my shelf. Um, yeah, the author, what is it? Paolo Basigalupi, I think, or Basigalupe. I don't know um, how to pronounce his last name, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, so I, what was his previous one? He had this one that was like... The Wind about, Up Girl. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah so, sorry, that was a, a dodge <laughs> of saying, no, I haven't read it. It's on my shelf. No, and I no, just no, haven't actually fine. looked at it. <laughs> Okay, well, there's a book in it that it references all the time. It's it's about uh, about Phoenix um, becoming unlivable due to mm-hmm. heat, and I mean it's also about like assassins and and like water mafias and stuff, right? But it's it's about uh, a society collapsing um, because of lack of water, mm-hmm. and the people who go around and basically like enforce water law and things like that. Um, but there's a book in it that it, everyone references called Cadillac Desert. Yes, yeah. Okay. So I don't know anything about this book, but all of the characters in this in this other book are obsessed with this book, Cadillac Desert, basically being like, this is the writing on the wall. This is how we all should have known that Phoenix needs to be abandoned. Yeah. Um, But your job is to make sure that people don't have to abandon Phoenix. (laughs) Well, I'm yeah, I mean, I have I have more complicated feelings on on that, you know, like. There's a there's a term in like resilience and resiliency like adjacent fields called managed retreats. And that's yeah, like okay. also just an accepted term and in, in a lot of like disaster management and so forth. Like I think it's mostly surrounding I mean, I think I don't remember exactly where the origins are, but I used to see it mostly applied to like flooding from like rivers uh that are getting like extremely flooded because of weird precipitation and because of processes of development and urbanization or whatever but you just have like these homes that are too close to the rivers that are like behaving pretty erratically or flooding more often than the city you know wants to provide Mm -hmm. aid for and so they're just like we got to move these people back away from the river but i mean it's also something that's happening in coastal areas like miami um, where you have people trying to move a little farther back onto higher elevation but in a place like Phoenix, where you just, it's hot everywhere, you know, like there's right. parts of the city that are hotter than others and we have some controls over it. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's tough to really figure out what the long-term plan is here um, and water being, you know, correctly identified in, in those books as uh, being such a, a major limiting factor here. I mean, what do we, what's the long-term plan? Like I've, I've read strategies that include canal systems from like the Mississippi, you know, like this, which Uh would be a scale of engineering and water delivery that would just be, you know, enormous. And we already get water from the the Southern Colorado river, which we shouldn't be getting water from um, in terms of its natural flow, but you know, we're doing that anyway. Right. Yeah. So I guess (laughs) 
short term, I'm certainly focused on that. But, you know, I'm sort of agnostic as to whether or not it's going to keep people here or keep things viable. But it's just like, well, what's what are the problems that we have? What can we do about, you know, this situation given our, our current limitations and so forth and trying to square the, the circle, basically? My own, um, uh, before I lived, I, I moved to a house in the mountains. But before that, I was living in a cabin in the woods. And one of the main reasons that we all moved off of the property that we were living on is that we were next to this creek. And it was a 100-year floodplain. Mm-hmm. And it became a uh, five times a year floodplain. And <laughs> we'd have engineers come out and they'd be like, well, it's not supposed to do this. And then we'd be like, well, what do we do? And they're like, well, it's just going to get worse. Climate change is just going to make it worse. Yeah. And basically, I mean, I had one of the only houses that was... Um, physically safe from it up in the up on the hill but then like you know my driveway and you know my my access in and out would be waist deep in water sometimes and all kinds of stuff coming down the the creek that turns into this massive river several times a year that's not supposed to so i I, the managed retreat that uh, that's what you know 10 of us just did so yeah, I mean, it can happen at the the individual scale. It can happen at like the city planning scale. Yeah. You know, there's there's a bunch of different ways. Coerced retreat, you know, maybe be another description. I don't know that <laughs> that exists in like the literature, but you know, it's like there's there's good argumentation for for moving because it's physically becoming too difficult to live in this area. Yeah, I mean, to be clear, I'm not from Phoenix. I'm originally from like the I'm from a suburb of, of Kansas City, Johnson County, which is like a, you know, wealthy middle class neighborhood. So I, I'm, you know, not even from this area. I came here for graduate school. And I mostly came here for graduate school because there was an opportunity to work abroad in southern Chile. So, you know, my, my relationship with Phoenix is like, yeah, I don't know what you're going to do here. Like, it's not <laughs> good luck. <laughs> I, I certainly wouldn't have chosen to be here under normal circumstances. I've come to like it, you know, in some ways and can certainly, you know, empathize with my neighbors and so forth down here. But a stance on Phoenix is a little more complicated uh, because just like, yeah, you've got some problems. And I, I don't know what to tell you about 120 degree weather and like the number of 100 degree days that are increasing. And you're, yeah, this place is already like an engineering, like, it, it's only possible because of extreme hydrological engineering. And now there's no additional water sources to, to pull from. So, you know, what are you, what, what are you really trying to do here? Yeah, um, no, I, there's like a, there's like moral questions. I don't quite know how to untangle about like, you know, I, I, I'm not trying to judge anyone, but I don't think I would move to Phoenix. I don't think I would yeah. move to a city that probably certainly shouldn't exist at the scale that it's at currently. but. I, I, you know, I understand that, but, but that's, a, but then you get into this idea of like, well, everyone has different reasons to be different places. And it's really yeah. easy to be like, oh, you can't go do that. And you're like, well, I'm from here, or this is where the school is that I need to go access. Or, you know, there's a million reasons why someone might need to go somewhere. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the majority of people moving here is probably just because real estate in California got too expensive and uh, cost <laughs> of living in, in Phoenix, which is also like a right to work state, you know, so there is uh-huh. uh, cheap and unprotected labor here. You know, there's there's a lot of less noble reasons or, or less understandable reasons for like why the city is growing. And you look at how like water usage is is, you know, currently what water usage looks like here on the grounds. And there's definitely, you know, like some movements toward like, get all the grass out of your lawn, like yeah. um, plants, 
species. It's called xeriscaping here, where you actually just like plant cacti and brittle bush and, and, you know, various species that are actually native to the region or do really well with very little or no water input and can handle the heat. But I mean, there's pools and fountains and uh, golf courses and all these other things where you're like, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know how long this is going to go. And there's yeah. a lot of people who live here because they can golf like year round. So, you know, <laughs> is that the worst thing to get rid of? No, yeah, <laughs> but you know, so resiliency means get rid of the golf courses. It's <laughs> not a city <laughs> level. <laughs> well, you know, this, uh, if I, if I say yes to that, I can guarantee I won't get a job here. Uh, okay. In, in the future. Well, I will so say, I will. <laughs> yeah. um, okay. So, so, but to move away from, from heat stuff, uh, some of the, yeah. some of your work <clears throat> has been around flooding, right? Which obviously yeah. is an interest of mine for some strange reason. Um, this is like absolutely part of why I, I picked a house on the top of the hill. Like I, mm-hmm. I bought a house on top of a mountain because I'm like, no, I'm good. This is where Smart. I want to be. Um, maybe. I mean, I'm sure there's all kinds of other problems like wind or something that I just, and there's like no soil here. It's all rock. Um, yeah. There's a reason Erosion, that where yeah. I move is cheap, you know? But so is some of your work, let's see, you talk about how you um, use natural landscape features to make cities more resilient to flooding. I'm really interested in that. Like, what does that look like? How do like what are the practical steps that um, communities and cities are taking to protect themselves from uh, from climate change? Yeah, yeah, and I, I'm glad that you kind of divided that into two potential sources for that. There's you know like individual preparation, and then mm-hmm. there's like citywide, you know, or city sponsored preparation. Um, and so there's there's been a movement in the like engineering and urban planning spheres toward what's known as green infrastructure and there's a bunch of different terms for it but green infrastructure is basically like either designed adapted or incorporated natural landscape features or you know natural-esque landscape features uh, that can do many of the same jobs that more traditional like constructed infrastructure would do plus it looks nice and provides habitat and potentially has all these other sort of like co-benefits to it that you know like like the la canal is kind of like a good example of what a traditional infrastructure sort of approach toward dealing with flooding issues and so it's this huge canal where you can dump all this water and it moves water through the system really quickly. But of course, it's like this giant chunk of concrete that's dry most of the year. And <clears throat> number one, it's not aesthetically that attractive. Number two, it's also like a major source of heat. You kind of get all this concrete in urban areas and it absorbs uh, sunlight during the day, emits it at night and contributes to, I mean, high heat during the day, but especially heat's a major issue in cities across the country because of um, night temperatures in particular have increased. Hmm. It's basically because you have all this, you know, concrete infrastructure that's re-radiating the heat, you know, for hours and hours and hours. Um, So nights just become like more uncomfortable and there's a lot of morbidity and mortality stuff associated with that. But then like here in Phoenix, um, and there's a funny example, there's this area called Indian Bend Wash. And so, so I mean, like Scottsdale, to Tempe was having like major flooding issues, particularly during the monsoon season. Yeah, we got monsoons out here that come up from like the Sea of Cortez or the Gulf of Mexico. Mm-hmm. And um, so during the summer months, which is when we get the majority of our rainfall, it just comes in these like huge sheets and these like, you know, 
burst events of extreme precipitation that totally overwhelm the ability of like soils to allow for infiltration and for the like drainage system of the city to to deal with it. And so they were like, we got to put this water somewhere and it's kind of got to be a zone that can regularly flood or, or whatever. And uh, the, the Scottsdaleites, you know, who have some amount of wealth and therefore power in the city, were just like, no, we're not going to build a, a canal like mm-hmm. LA. That's really ugly and unattractive. And so designers came back with this idea called Indian Bend Wash, which is this sort of multi-use like greenway, I think is how it'd be described. So it's like in parts, it's like a, a, a golf course, but then in other parts, it's just like straight up a park and like place where you can take your dogs, uh, do picnics or whatever and then just you know for a couple weeks out of the year it's flooded um that's just how it is and but at least it's like multi-use the community really likes it and it's green you know which is nice in a in that sort of desert city uh i'm holding any judgment on on green versus not green out here of course but um (laughs) yeah i mean so they keep it watered when it's not monsoon season but yeah i mean yeah exactly and so that's kind of an example of more of an engineered or sort of created green infrastructure practice, but at least it provides aesthetic, you know, aspects to it that the sort of other infrastructure doesn't. I primarily work on like wetlands and other things that are in, there's like a whole bunch of other structures designed to deal with flooding that also potentially increase like biodiversity in cities that can remove pollutants through natural processes, provide habitats and things like that. So the majority of my research is actually focused on on wetlands in particular. And um, I was looking at this city in Southern Chile that has just, (laughs) they had an earthquake in in 1960. It's the greatest magnitude earthquake ever recorded. The city is called Valdivia, if anyone wants to look it up. And so like portions of the city just sunk like several meters, I think like 10 meters in some portions. And so just, (laughs) and like they're on the coast, they get like 98 inches of rain per year. They're at like the confluence of these like three rivers. So those things just filled up with water and became this, the wetland system. And so instead of just like paving over the wetlands and pretending like everything was going to be normal forever after that, once they rebuild, they just decided to to keep the wetlands around in most cases. There's been some wetland mm-hmm. loss, but not a whole lot. And it actually serves as a natural drainage system for the city. So a lot of just like the urban areas and the suburban areas drain into these wetlands and the wetlands have definitely been affected by it. And we're still studying like the effects of doing something like that to a wetland system, but they certainly provide a lot more biodiversity and kind of keep this sort of endangered habitat, you know, a wetlands alive in the city. So I've, I've studied the utility of constructed and natural wetlands and modified wetlands um, toward increasing flood resilience in cities, basically. And it, it works. Yeah. Yeah, uh, their wetlands work incredibly well. I mean, probably in part because they're not engineered. So like if you have a city that's like thinking about building a wetland or something like that, then they have a budget and and the budget is going to require some like design constraints and stuff like that. But these like natural wetlands are just, you know, whatever size they were naturally. And they themselves like just don't really flood under even like a hundred year return period storm event, which is just like a storm that's so large that you only get one of them like once every hundred years or something like that. And they work great. And uh, the wetlands are like part of the urban identity. 
uh, as well. Like they support a lot of charismatic species like um, swans and these like particular kinds of birds. Theoretically, they support otters, but I've never seen an otter like that far into Uh the city. Maybe they exist. I don't know. But yeah, so they do all these things that like traditional infrastructure that we, you know, started doing since like the 1940s um, just doesn't do well at all. I mean, it, it's funny because it's like there, there's a move within science fiction. I know I think about everything from the point of view of fiction, but there's like a move within science fiction right now to move towards like solar punk and, and towards these ideas of, I, I guess I would say that like in many ways, science fiction got everything backwards and wrong, right? It was imagined <laughs> as like positive societies where we like control everything. Yeah. But it sounds like from what you're saying and from everything else I've like read across various things, the secret is to instead like integrate the things that we make into the natural systems rather mm-hmm. than like go out and like recreate all of the systems ourselves. Yeah. But then it does lead to the logical conclusion that the best way to be resilient against climate change is to not have already destroyed everything. <laughs> yeah. And, and cities definitely struggle with that. Um, yeah. I mean, Cause most have already destroyed everything. Yeah. I mean, particularly with wetlands too. I, the, the estimate keeps changing. So forgive me. You know, I, I think it's like safe to say we've destroyed like 70% of wetlands in the U.S. Okay. Um, since like the mid 1800s. And those are industrial processes, those are agricultural processes, which are all, you know, ultimately, you know, issues of urbanization and, and meeting urban needs and so forth. And in a lot of cases, not necessarily all of them. But yeah, I mean, so like <laughs> you're telling like a city that yeah, you should have some wetlands, you know, like historically, it's like you mean the thing that they drained in order to like build the city in the first place? Like that's and it's just kind of silly being like, well, step one is don't do everything you've done for the past like 150 <laughs> years. And you're going to be spending a lot of money reversing that, actually. Yeah. Yeah. There's a concept in infrastructure called like safe to fail. Um, and I don't want to like get too much into it because I don't have the definition on hand for me, but it's basically the idea of like this sort of like command and control concept of like infrastructure and like perfect knowledge and so forth. It just doesn't work. Um, it's not true in the present day. There's always like, you know, freak storm events and things like that, but it's certainly not going to be true in a future where the climate is changing and models are, are so uncertain about it. So the best thing you can do is allow for a lot of flexibility with your design and to figure out you know, like areas where like this sort of like quote unquote failure or like flooding in particular, like with Indian Bend Wash is totally acceptable. Like society's mm-hmm. just like, yeah, you can't use that area a couple of times a week, but like no one's really being impacted by it in, in any sort of like major way. You're just like, yeah, it's just, that's just how it goes. So is there like, because this, this concept really excites me, right? Because like uh, a lot of my, you know, uh, political understanding, a lot of my understanding philosophically and all these other ways is based on this idea that like trying to have absolute control is a losing game and probably one that we should just admit we're losing and instead find ways to like, I'm going to use words that have scientific meanings that I'm not using correctly, like engineer chaotically, like, Mm -hmm. like accept that all of this natural organic or chaotic processes are going to happen and take those into account in our engineering, like in how we build cities and things like that. For me, this also applies like socially, like recognizing that we can never have a a system of complete control of people. And instead, so it's not like let everyone go do whatever they want, therefore, but instead this like 
way of engineering or structuring things that takes that into account is like something mm-hmm. that I'm very excited about. So I'm, I'm really excited about this, the safe to fail concept then. Of <laughs> yeah. It's, it's something that's definitely taking hold in, in engineering and actually seems to be getting through to a lot of design people. So engineers, or at least in the, in the world of academia, certainly get the idea of it and you can get, you can convince cities also to adopt it, but it's sometimes an uphill struggle. And then also you just have like competing construction interests. Like maybe there's been a, a design firm or something like that, that hasn't adopted it. And, but like gets the majority of contracts in a city or something like that, that they've already got a relationship with. So right. there's like some amount of inertia on that point, but it certainly has hold within academia and, and research. And my experience working with some cities has been they're they're certainly open to it and thinking about it more. Um, Because they're certainly paying a lot for disaster relief and disaster like repairs and so forth every year. And they're frankly, you know, like desperate to to lower that part of their budget. So, you know. Yeah. So besides planting trees for heat and increasing wetlands for flooding, what are Mm -hmm. other simple steps? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. These five simple tricks to make your city immune to climate change. Like what, what else are people doing or thinking about? Uh, to respond to crisis. So like, yeah, I'm trying to think of how to, to answer this question. So there's like, a, I could go into like a, other engineering structures and so forth that we're kind of using to, to do a lot of this sort of management, like more locally and through like natural systems, like bioswales. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Are so a swale like a, is like a thing that moves water in a field, right? Yeah. And so like a bioswale in like an urban area is just like, so you have water that's on the street or whatever, and then you just kind of like divert it to the side area, basically. Um, that's usually like soil and some plants, and maybe there's a tree in there too. And the soils and the plants and so forth filter the nutrients out of that stormwater before it hits. By nutrients, I mean pollutants too. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I come from a, a, a background where everything is like a nutrient, not necessarily like a, a pollutant. But I mean, stuff like nitrogen are kind of awesome. <laughs> that's an interesting concept like yeah yeah i mean yeah I, I i can maybe go into that in a sec but like so you have all these things that are flowing th- off of yards and off of streets and if you try to treat that before it gets to the water system or like the canals or whatever that you're using to evacuate water from the city that's a lot of stuff to have to filter out and so but if you build these things kind of around the city these like bioswales they do a lot of the filtering like on site and so you know over time they sequester a lot of like nitrogen phosphorus organic carbons whatever um heavy metals too also can get filtered out of that and then you know like i don't know i don't know what the the repair system is like for that but i mean you just swap those soils out eventually like bacteria and so forth can treat some of that locally and plants can also you know use some of that locally too but then you just have like soils or something like that that you're kind of like swapping out because maybe they're too heavy in metals to support the plant life or something like that but that ends up being like a a cheaper and, and sort of like more innovative solution than you know, send it all to a central processing plant and then spend all this money like filtering out through chemical and mechanical processes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then also you get some like green stuff in, in your in your neighborhood. <clears throat> in terms of like things that individuals are doing, uh, a lot of it is just like swapping out. I mean, like here in Phoenix, I talked about this sort of 
uh, zero escaping process by which people are, are replacing like their grass lawns, you know, which they were used to in the, you know, like Northern Michigan or something like that, you know, wherever they moved to escape the cold, that was, you know, the, the reason they left in the first place, but they still want some of like the feel of, of where they lived. So they'll plant grass or, or whatever. And then, you know, there are now there's movements across the city, at least in the less extremely wealthy places to do this sort of zero escaping process where you take out your lawns and replace it with like uh, either like gravel or something like that. And then plants like naturally come up through that, or, I mean, just literally leave it as the, the normal dirt surface here that promotes like infiltration locally as well. Dirt ends up being, you know, or at least the natural soil here, I should use proper terms <laughs> ends up, you know, allowing a lot of infiltration that would otherwise just like go to runoff or, Things like that, basically, is or what people are kind of doing locally. But I mean, a lot of these issues, like flooding in particular, is it's like a citywide sort of issue, and it, a lot of it just has to be treated kind of in a centralized way because there's yeah. they own most of the the substances. I mean, you know, so there's buildings and and roofs and stuff like that that cause runoff and, you know, houses are on top of soil and so because they're on top of soil, they're blocking infiltration that would naturally happen in this in the region. So homes are contributors to to flooding in cities, but, you know, there's not much you can do about that. But um are there like ways to like encourage infiltration into the soil? Like I'm imagining little like like little holes you dig, like almost like golf <laughs> holes or something to like allow more percolation or something you know i've n- I've never actually thought about like local retention you know like if we just built mm-hmm. divots in everyone's like front yard uh <laughs> for like you know like a small pond that's dry most of the year i wonder how much that would actually do it i don't think i've ever seen a study that's even considered that that would be interesting as like a thought experiment and i'm sure you know like a modeling experiment well, thank me in the acknowledgments when this yeah, is yeah. the Nobel Prize. <laughs> yeah. Green roofs are kind of another way that uh, this stuff is being retained and, and dealt with locally. And that also has impacts on like the amount of heat that your your home absorbs from the sun. And so that's, mm-hmm. you know, if you own your house or if you have like a, a tenant association with enough power to like pressure your, your building um, owner to install these sorts of things, those are certainly things that'll benefit the flood risk in your city and also potentially deal with heat too. Um, but the majority of places that are contributing to like extreme heat and flooding, it's like parking lots, roads, um, all the sort of like hard infrastructure that businesses yeah. and development uh-huh. practices and, and cities themselves have to kind of manage. So the pressure ends up being with them in a lot of ways. I mean, that makes sense. Like that's like one of the, I feel like the current sort of generation of like people maybe under 40 or so, like one of the things we're railing against is um, I say as someone who's barely under 40 is this idea that we were told we could stop climate change by like changing our light bulbs while, yeah. you know, while being forced into car culture and while watching the U S military, like pollute more than anyone. And you, you yeah. know, it, so it, it, I get excited about individual, they're not even like solutions, right. But like individual approaches to like mitigate certain effects. Yeah. You know? But but I think you're right that like the larger infrastructure is something that needs to be controlled in a way that actually is useful for mitigating climate change. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm with you. I've also, we're probably same generation. So I like, I just grew up with the whole idea and like the, 
like the need for like personal lifestyle change and so forth mm-hmm. in order to uh, effect these sorts of like change. And of course, you know, like I've been doing this for, you know, since I was like 17 or 18. And so I've got a lot of years into this sort of individual like behavioral change and it's, you know, uh, emissions are up. <laughs> like, yeah. what do you, what else am I supposed to do at this point? You know, I ride my bike most places, but like, it, there's gotta be the sort of like systematic sort of change to it. And, and like, I, I say that, but I'm also, so I'm also a vegan. And so like mm-hmm. my, my, Oh, cool. My general thought with it is just like, I know it's not a systemic change, but like the amount of suffering that I'm causing through my actions is less, you know, um, as a result of it. And ultimately that is important to me, at least for like living with myself, you know, like maybe it's not having this sort of large structural chains, but also, you know, theoretically I'm, you know, some extremely small decimal point of, of less meat consumption (laughs) in the U S and that, you know, that's going to stay affects in the water. It's, it's not just an animal yeah. issue. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's many, many, many reasons to, to go vegan for, um, but I mean, it's the same thing with like carbon emissions and so forth too, where I still, even though I'm like, it's a systemic thing, I'm like, well, yes, but I mean, if I get in my car and drive, that's carbon that's in the atmosphere and it's going to be there, you know, as part of the collective problem to eventually have to deal with in the future. And so like, I still feel like I got to do something in spite of the fact that I don't, I'm, I in no way think that I'm solving the the problem. <laughs> no, that's such an interesting perspective towards it. Like I, I think about it a lot of like, like I drive a giant pickup truck um, and I defend it out of, well, I used to live in a cabin I built myself and, yeah. you know, I live really rurally and, and like I, I use my giant pickup truck for giant pickup truck stuff all the time. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also get 14 miles to the gallon. And like, that doesn't feel good. Right. Um, and I, I mean, I would love to have an all electric one, but you know, I also have like, you know, don't love coal or all these other things. Right. Mm-hmm. But it does, it seems like it's less about like beating up on people to like make individual changes as much as like, maybe like everyone kind of looking at their own circumstances and saying like, what can they pull off? Like, if you're in a good place where you can just mostly ride a bike, mostly ride a bike. If you're like in yeah. a place where like, like, I don't know, I spend all my time thinking about like whether I'm going to start DIY turning plastic into diesel fuel. <laughs> yeah. Right. Because, because it can be done and mm-hmm. recycling seems to be fake right now since COVID hit, it was always a little bit fake, but like it seems extra fake right now. And I'm like, well, that sucks. I, I still want to recycle, even though I know it doesn't save the world, you know? So I guess it takes both. I, I'm totally with you. And recycling was like another huge blow. Like, you know, it was just like, I trusted that the system was like doing this well. And then, you know, probably along with a lot of people in the last like two years or whatever, there's been, you know, more writing and probably documentaries about it. And you're just like, come on. Like that was, that was the thing that I was like really good at. And I make a point to like rinse my stuff out and it's yeah. just a lie, you know, like, it's in the clothes. It's getting in through, you know, like my washing machine uh, and my dryer, like decomposing the plastics out of there. You know, it's just like, okay, if it's not, if it's not a systemic change, 
when or how is it going to happen? You know, like I, I was doing the thing that I was supposed to do and it's still, right. you know, uh, yeah. I mean, that brings us back to the resiliency stuff, right? Because like, there's, we're, we're not going to win. Like, I mean, we should keep trying to stop the worst mm-hmm. effects of climate change. And like, there's probably a difference. We're probably facing a tipping point between like, you know, life on earth and no life on earth at some point. Well, okay. Actually, that is actually one of my main questions for you. Um, mm-hmm. you know, it's actually how I first ran across you is I basically asked the internet being like, who can I ask about climate change? Like, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously everyone's thinking about it right now, but who can I ask who thinks about it in ways that are useful for this show and this audience? And, um, and I know you don't specifically, you're not like whole thing is not studying climate change and its effects in a grand scale, but I think you have more of a sense of the grand scale of climate change than say I do, or most people who are listening to this might. Um, so what the fuck is about to happen? (laughs) (laughs) What, 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 what's the, even if it's not your research, like, what are people saying? Like what, you know, is it like, you know, there's a version of the world that like, I've always been a little bit doom and gloom. Mm -hmm. I, I, I see a version of the world by like 2045 where we're living underground and growing food in controlled environments because the earth is uninhabitable. And I, I don't think that that's like the thing that's going to happen, but that's like at one end, right? And yeah, then yeah. There's the like, oh, well, just there's going to be, you know, some coastal cities are in trouble and, and we'll have a little bit more hurricanes and flooding than we used to. But overall, the, you know, everything will keep on going on. Like what, what do you think is about to happen or what do people think is going to happen? Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> the... So, I mean, just to, to be clear about this, um, so, you know, of course, these are my views and certainly not the views of Arizona State University or any of my, like, <laughs> uh, colleagues or, or whatever. Because, I mean, there's a lot of variation even within the the community that, you know, does climate change studies or that works with climate change data. And what I was going to be clear about was that I am someone who works the climate data. I'm, I'm not like a a climate change expert. I don't know all the models that get used mm-hmm. for atmospheric circulation or oceanic circulation or whatever. So I'm the person who like looks at the data and then like looks at the city and tries to, you know, figure out what can we do to, to match the goals of the city with the reality of potentially what we're going to be facing. And so, I mean, <laughs> but even then, you know, I'm probably less gloom and doom than I think some people that I've run into who are more lay on the subject, like, but I mean, there's so many hear. caveats to to say with this one. So my life personally, you know, like things probably are going to get weird in terms of how the climate's going to look and how we end up having to respond or whatever. But I perhaps, you know, incorrectly feel like I'm going to be, somewhat more insulated from the effects than some other individuals or whatever, you know, like have money, then you can throw it at the problem and it won't necessarily like fix it, but it will make your life potentially a little more comfortable than it would be for people with less money. And that's how the, that's how it works. You know, like that's just how the country and capitalism and so forth have worked. So like, it's, it's really the marginalized communities that are going to, you know, really be facing the brunt of it. So, I mean, like Phoenix is a perfect example of this where like extreme heat, you know, who's it a problem for? Um, and what is, what are we defining as a problem? Mm-hmm. So in a future where we're getting like 180 days 
a year where it's like over 100 degrees, the majority of people in the city have AC and the majority of deaths from extreme heat and dehydration and so forth are usually from marginalized communities, particularly homeless Mm -hmm. um, people. And so like what a city is going to look like when it's over 100 degrees for 180 days a year for like the homeless population is absolutely devastating. And it's already hard enough to live here. Like the the relative dryness of everything, like you're constantly drinking water and like Arizona is not a kind place if you don't have, I mean, it's not kind in general, like if you don't have money, like, and it's, I don't know, this sort of conservative ideology here, it just really promotes, I don't know, like absolute amounts of, like if you're, if you're having a problem, then you're kind of the person who has to get you out of it, or like the immediate people around you are responsible for getting you out of it. And there's not necessarily this sort of like societal connection. So sorry, this is a a long way of saying like, I don't know, it's going to be weird for a lot of people. But in terms of like, my faith in our ability to manage it is maybe the better question, because I don't think there's going to be you know, in some places with like ocean level rise and extreme heat or whatever, it's just going to be unlivable and unsustainable for for some populations of people. But like, say you're living in a place that doesn't face one of the imminent like climate threats, like sea level rise or whatever, that's just going to physically like displace you. There's a lot to manage in terms of agriculture, in terms of people's daily lives, you know, like if we're pushing public transportation as a way to like cut emissions and so forth, then here in a place like Phoenix, where it's this hot all the time, then you also need to pair that with, you know, measures to make public transportation more usable and more accessible. Right. So a lot of my answer is just like, how much faith do I have in the systems to get us there as opposed to like, is the planet just going to become like poisonous and ruinous and, you know, unlivable? Cause I, I don't necessarily think that that's what's going to happen. I'm more just like, okay. well, you know, is the city going to step up? Is the country going to step up Is you know, as an international collective, is that going to step up or, or whatever um, in order to make things more manageable? And I think my answer pre COVID would have been different than than post COVID, um, where I'm guessing I'm, you're more cynical now. Oh my God! Yes, <laughs> me too. Yeah, I mean it, it's so cynical that you know me complaining about this administration. My parents are like, "I didn't know you liked Trump," and I'm like, "I don't like Trump." <laughs> <laughs> I'm just this disappointed, you know, <laughs> with like the Biden totally. administration handling of it, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Like it's, it's one of those things where I'm like, well, okay. Like the, these were the adults in the room and like the, the best and brightest, this is what like the meritocratic um, neoliberal system has produced as like the, the people who should be running the disaster response and who spent the Trump administration, you know, dunking on social media and whatever, and on television and through all media accessible and then just step up to the plate. And it's like, what are you doing? Like, you're not even... (laughs) consistent with i mean like it's just incredible like i'm now just like i'm not listening to anything the cdc says ever again like it's <laughs> i've i'm just so amazed that the cdc was like turned into the the propaganda wing for the administration in power you know like what does the administration want to do it wants to reopen schools it wants to get people back in the workplace and the cdc is going to say 
whatever the hell it is that's going to like be necessary to get people in there and it's not right. going to be scientifically informed so like you know so what's there's, the point of having this institution if it's not scientifically informed yeah yeah that's those are the professionals those are the public health officials and like fauci's being like we got to consider the economic impact of um having a 10-day quarantine and it's like that's not your job that's somebody else's job on the economy side to like combat what you're saying about it and so like you know, I can just imagine a climate person in the same, you know, position as like, you know, Miami's flooding and like New York City's getting battered by hurricanes or whatever mm -hmm. and being like, <laughs> I mean, just like, you know, climate change is not a big deal. And um, it's like personal responsibility and so forth. And if you adopt, uh, if you get your electric cars um, and change your personal lives and so forth, it's not going to be that bad or whatever. And, you know, it, it's just not. It's going to require sort of coordination and so forth. And I would say there's a lot of good research happening and there's plenty of good stuff, you know, from academia and from scientists and so forth coming out about like strategies. It's just like, mm -hmm. are we going to pick them up? Or are we actually going to follow through with them? Is there going to be money, you know, to actually to do any of this? Have you seen, um, it is pop culture thing, but have you, have you seen Don't Look Up, the Netflix? I, it, it's on my list. I really oh, want okay. to. Um, I'm sorry to I, well, the, one of the things that happens in it is you have this, because people have always used, well, you know, I mean, like Watchmen use this, a bunch of other things have used this, like, mm -hmm. we'd all come together if we were facing this apocalyptic threat from outside, you know, yeah. that would be what finally brings everyone together is, is banding together for our own mutual interest or whatever, right? Yeah. And then like, and what and what climate change and COVID show is that that's just um, not something we can count on reliably. And I think there would be ways to shift public discourse in ways that do have it. I mean, you have some countries where the vaccination rate is uh, substantially higher without necessarily having like a higher like enforcement or whatever of it. Mm -hmm. uh, to my understanding, I could be wrong with this. And yeah, I don't know. Just the, the sense of like at the beginning of COVID, it really felt like, oh, we're all coming together and like, you know, mutual aid organizations are everywhere. And then instead, all of a sudden people decided to just become Nazis and then run around <laughs> and like yell at everyone. And I don't know. And then it all just disintegrated from there. And then, yeah, watching the Democrats fail at the one thing that theoretically they were going to do. I mean, the main thing that they were going to do is like not be literal fascists. And I guess they yeah. successfully accomplished that. But the other thing that they were supposed to do is be like the adults in the room. Yeah. Like you're talking about because like Trump and his, and his are like petulant crying children and actually no offense to children. Um, <laughs> children, have, <laughs> children have much better excuses. And um, yeah, I've, I've known less spiteful children, certainly. Yeah. No, I don't know. It, it, I don't know. Okay. Yeah. So I haven't, I haven't seen the movie. Sorry. I was going to comment on. Yeah. Um, and like, but I mean, I've, I know what it's about. Um, yeah, yeah. I, and I've read like the criticism of it. I followed David Sirota and um, on, on Twitter and have certainly read a lot of criticism. And I've certainly seen a lot of stuff about the presentation of the material and like maybe the metaphor being a little heavy handed or whatever, mm -hmm. but, it, it and like maybe, subtle. Yeah, I'm, it's not. It's literally like a, a meteor about to hit Earth or a comet or, or whatever. And, um, you know, it's the news being like, well, whatever. It, it's a bunch of different institutions coming together to tell you that it's not something you really need to worry about or, you know, like mobilize over, I guess. I haven't seen it again. Um, it, it's not a complex movie. You, you basically got it. Yeah. And so, I mean, I, I can... Certainly, I won't claim like I'm above aesthetics of a film or whatever. A good film is, you know, should accomplish that. But it's one of like the most wide reaching 
climate change parables, you know, mm-hmm. currently in existence. And I have to say, from what I've heard about a lot of it, it's certainly not too far off from from what we're experiencing. And like in a pre-COVID world, maybe it would have like felt a little heavy-handed or something like that. But I, you know, I, I get the gist of it, and I'm like, yeah, it's kind of what we're doing. Like, what do you like? You know, they're not even telling us to turn the fountains off or like, you know, or anything like that around here into Phoenix. And we're literally in the middle of establishing water shortage measures like agriculture out. You're done here in Phoenix. I think we are. We just upgraded this. No one needs that stuff. Yeah, exactly. We don't need this local stuff. That's now Mexico's problem. Also, we're not delivering water to Mexico anymore. So, you know, like uh, there's (laughs) there's so many things where it's just like, okay, so you're not handling this at all. And we're not supposed to be concerned about it for some reason. To go back to something you brought up at the very beginning, you know, you were talking about how climate change models don't really go past 2080 right now, or like, you know, Mm -hmm. one's talking about what's going to happen past 2080. And you were like, I have no idea why. And, and I have two answers to that. And one is more cynical than the other. Mm -hmm. And one, the, the, I mean, the most cynical one is like, that's because like, who knows if humanity is going to be around after 2080, certainly in a, a meaningful way. Mm-hmm. Or, and then, but the other is like the, just the, you know, everyone who's thinking about it assumes they'll be dead by 2080, even like <laughs> naturally. So mm-hmm. why would we care about like what our children have to deal with? You know? Yeah. Um, like I was born in the early eighties. So I assume I'll be dead by around 2080 if I'm lucky. Yeah. You know? So who cares about after that? I mean, Actually, it's funny. One of the most cynical things my, my dad says on a regular basis, my dad has four kids and none of us have kids. And mm-hmm. he's like, he, he actually does care about climate change, but he's like, well, I don't care about climate change. I don't have any skin in the game. I don't have any grandchildren. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a family lines over or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Like you're, you're literally telling this to your children being like, I'm not here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> like, I'm going to be dead before it's a problem. I'm like, I'm not. And actually you're not either. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, number one, uh, he gave up already on living forever. And that's, you know, just I'm not I don't think I'm ever going to do that. So, you know, I've I've got skin in the game, you know, as long as the planet's around. Um, yeah, fair enough. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's literally the reason that people give on some of this investment stuff and into like green infrastructure into, mm-hmm. you know, dealing with climate change. It's just like, yeah, I mean, sure, that's like a theoretical thing that we like could have to deal with. But like, number one, I'm not even going to be here. And number two, you know, whatever, and goes into the other reasoning. But it's not an mm-hmm. uncommon thing for someone to be like, mortality, I'm dead. Like, what do you what do you want me to do? So, <laughs> yeah, I and like, part of it is, you know, just the limits of, of modeling, like they're uncertain, even as like 10 years ahead. And so you kind of like increase right. the amount of uncertainty, like as you expand that time out. But like, honestly, I, I just think it's so horrifying to like look at it and we're just like, okay, well, we used to think that population was going to peak, you know, by like 2040 or, or 2060. I forget like what the actual peak date was going to be. And then like, you know, suddenly the models are just like, yeah, we don't really see a stop to that. And so it's like, okay, so we've got a change in climate and we have a population that's going to keep increasing indefinitely. And no one's got a plan for like resource usage for, for anything along those right. lines. And, you know, to be clear, this is not me being like overpopulation is a problem. It's more like we need to plan, you know, like there's not we're not doing a good job with the number of people we have on the planet currently. And, you know, management or not, uh, people and our, our, you know, resource usage put 
major pressures on on systems and because i you know mostly think in terms of ecology and like natural systems even though i'm in an urban area i'm always thinking about like you know regardless i could do a million things in a given day i'm already a vegan i already try to ride my bike as much as i can i try to do all these things but like i'm still impacting the environment and you know like at the end of the day me being here is impacting natural systems and so now i i'm always thinking about like biodiversity loss and the the things that we're you know also contributing to just in you know even though i'm, I'm a relatively low hum of activity um compared to some people but you know we gotta really be thinking about that because otherwise you know it's not gonna resolve itself it's not just gonna be like oh it, it turned out to not be a problem <laughs> right well and that's what i feel like um some people are i mean they're sitting around waiting for the you know I think it might almost help for them to realize that scientists at this point, engineers at this point are less thinking, how do we stop climate change? And how do we, instead, how do we mitigate its effects? You know, um, I mean, I guess people are thinking about how to like stop the worsening of it. Right. But it's mm -hmm. like, you know, people who are waiting around for the sort of magic bullet of like cold fusion power mixed yeah. with carbon capture or whatever, uh, mixed with Mars colonization or, you know, whatever various yeah. things like. Well, mine comments greenly. Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, I, uh, yeah. Um, there's just a lot of things that need to be wrangled and uh, we need to actually like do planning for it. And like I, I, as someone who's done a lot of stuff in my personal life to, to really try to manage some of this stuff, I mean, I work on, I'm a systems thinker and I work on this as like a system whole. And it's like, I mean, uh, what, how are we going to get people to like, change behavior advertising things like that i mean that'll get some people but then you know like it'll get right. perverted and politicized and whatever so this sort of individual approach to dealing with everything is not going to be the case and um i mean the the term transformation was in that definition of resilience and i think a lot of transformation just needs to happen and you know like i'm i'm anti-capitalist and so so you know my version of transformation is like you know what's a major problem for resiliency for a lot of people? <laughs> it's money and yeah. not having enough of it or not having a society that values them because they don't have enough of it. So we need to get rid of that because all of these studies that talk about like who are the most vulnerable populations, all of this stuff is tied to poverty. It's either poverty directly or it's all tied to poverty. And so if I'm talking to a city person about like, well, well, you know, what you can do is like add some wetlands to your city or whatever. You also have to like realize that's not going to be everything. Like you've there's there's going to be flooding. There's going to be some amount of like unmanageability, unpredictability to these systems. And the best way that you can deal with a lot of this is just deal with like inequality and this, you know, yeah. insane system of creating classes and, and things like that and reinforcing them in, in subtle and in less subtle ways. And until you deal with that, you know, you're, it's totally incomplete. The picture that you're, the, I don't know, the, the picture that you're seeing and that you're actually engaging with, like you, you've, you cannot leave out a lot of these issues of inequality and these, the way we consume things and, and everything like. No, I, I really like that way of tying class and all of that into this is like all part of it. I don't know. One of the things that I think about, um, one of my, one of my better friends is an engineer. Whenever I talk to her about these issues, one of the things that always comes up is that I think about like 
like when you talk about the concrete canal in, in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. which of course makes for dramatic movie sets. Um, I had no idea what that thing was just in every movie and eventually I figured it yeah. was a canal. But it's just bad engineering if you don't take into account all of the the context that the thing that you're creating will sit yeah. within. And mm-hmm. so like, and that's always been like my argument against a lot of the like quick fix technological stuff coming from engineers. And, and I say this as a lay person, but I'm like, it's just badly engineered. It does not work. It solves an immediate problem, but it doesn't work in the larger context. So it doesn't work. And the, the stuff that you're talking about, about like, so a resilient city is one that's like interfaced with nature, interfaced into its local context. And the, not just like assuming that the style of building that you use in the North is the style of building you should use in the South and the style of greenery you mm-hmm. have in Michigan should be what you have in Phoenix, but then also one that fights inequality and that's how you build a resilient city. I, I like that. Yeah. No. And that's, that's a critical message that I've like tried to put into like book chapters and so forth, where it's just like, look, we, we have a good idea of like what causes, you know, people to be vulnerable to climate change and to extreme weather events. It's the same thing that's made them vulnerable for the last, you know, like, <laughs> you know, since the the 1800s and like you know the major rise of, of capitalism and industry and so forth yeah. like you have all these engineering and tech solutions to things but you know at the end of the day i mean so i i also do surveys and stuff like that about flooding and in communities too and so i have some idea of how people are actually adapting and preparing to this sort of stuff and you know it's 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 a no brainer you get a wealthy person who has like flooding in their house so like yeah i paid a guy to pump it all out and then i had you know my walls redone or whatever to deal with the flood damage i replaced all the furniture um that got damaged by the flood and then you have like a, a, a person who doesn't even own the home that they live in they're like a renter on top of it and they could be facing eviction you know during mm-hmm. the the flood repairs if it gets repaired you know and like it's there are so many things where it's like okay so this person's like a temporary refugee within their own city because you know their home flooded and there's like renovations or whatever and that's not going to be solved, you know, necessarily by a tech solution. You might get statistically less flooding, either in terms of like depth or, or frequency, but like it's going to happen. Like there's just failures in these systems and people living, you know, hand to mouth, they're not going to be able to recover in the same way as, you know, wealthier people are or people who have who live in like a city or in a, a, yeah. a social governance system that actually cares about helping people recover like on an individual basis like you you just can't ignore that i mean certainly install more wetlands i'm, <laughs> I'm not going to tell you not to do that but right um, totally like, <laughs> it's like it's good to ride your bike it's good to eat less meat it's good to you know and and increasing biodiversity is a very valuable thing like yeah and, and it's a more valuable thing than riding a bike but like um, <laughs> what um okay well we're coming up on time and i'm wondering if you have any any final rousing thoughts or, or something that you wish I had asked or any, any final thoughts? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really tough because I don't want to just be like the problems are systemic and the system sucks. It's not doing its job. So <laughs> I there's mean, nothing you can true. do about it. <laughs> like, <laughs> that part's not true, but the rest is until true. it happens. Yeah. I mean, like there's really good work at the community level and, you know, tenant organizations and so forth that have kind of like pushed toward organizing and, and improving their own resiliency. And so I always, you know, try to remember those sorts of movements and the fact that like, 
academia is pretty responsive to that. Like if nothing else, like the, the push for novelty in academia, like has kind of been like, oh, well, this is like another form of resilience. It's like understudied or whatever. And so it gets like proper attention and, and study and appreciation in academia. And then like, you know, the pipeline from there is we talk to city officials or whatever who we're partnered with and then get them thinking about this sort of stuff. But it's like, it's kind of, it's not a definite sort of thing. It's like a tenuous relationship. It's not successful yeah. all the time, but like it is cool that it exists sometimes. And in some places, you know, like there's work that I've done where I, you know, I can go point to an individual wetland that I am personally responsible for like telling the city something about. And then like, I guess we got to protect it then. It's like, wow, <laughs> <laughs> cool. And you know, I can go back and that wetland will still be there, but it was already like, getting zoned for for housing and so forth so like stuff does happen and there is good work on it and you should do these sorts of like personal measures toward like reducing carbon footprint and all of that but like i don't know i, I think you described it as like climate nihilism in a in a previous yeah podcast episode i think with a restoration ecologist maybe yeah that sounds, that sounds right i have a terrible memory but it sounds <laughs> it's fine <laughs> where uh, you know, it's kind of just about, a, you know, nihilism is a bad thing in that you're just like, everything's fucked or whatever. But like, for me, it, it kind of takes the form of just like accepting that stuff is going to change and figuring out like what you can do about it in the immediate term. You know, like if we're able to stop climate change to some degree, great, awesome. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to do what I can to support that effort. But I think also it felt really good to kind of let go of that expectation because that allowed me to think about we can actually do a lot of stuff you know societally individually um to make things more livable even if climate change didn't you know isn't real you know for that matter or um you know didn't happen in the the way we see it or to the degree that we were seeing it there's there's a lot you can do that we are capable of doing it's you know a matter of creating the will and having the imagination to actually do it and that's, that's, you know, that's how I go back to work every day and look at climate projections and so forth. And like, oof, looks pretty difficult out there, <laughs> but, um, you know, there's, there's stuff you can do. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, is there a way that people can either, is can engage with your work or follow you on the internet or how would you like people to engage with you if they like what you're saying? uh hire me that's that's the n number one thing okay. i would like them to do because mm -hmm. uh, i'm graduating the semester um theoretically uh so please hire me but otherwise uh so my twitter handle is at jason r sour that's s-a-u-e-r um you know on twitter and um that's the only social media i've got going for me right now otherwise uh, oh i'm sorry i also have a pot all right so my research network runs a podcast as well called future cities oh cool where we talk with professionals and other researchers about urban resilience and so forth and do deeper dives into particular subjects like green gentrification and, you know, engineering resilience and so forth. So they can certainly check that if they want to, but it's, it's pretty nerd amazing. stuff. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. I really had a lot of fun. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, you should tell people about it. You should tell people about it on the internet or in person. I say the same thing every week. I try to come up with new ways to say the same thing every week. Isn't that fun? It's fun for everyone. It's fun for you. It's fun for me. Hooray! But it really does mean a lot um, for the show when 
you tell people about it. It's pretty much the only way that people hear about it. And you can also support this show by supporting our publisher, which is Strangers in a Tangled Wilderness, which is supportable at patreon.com slash strangers in a tangled wilderness. There's not a lot of stuff behind a paywall, but if you uh, pay a certain amount a month, you'll get a mailed print zine every month. And either way, you're helping support a whole bunch of different rad projects that are going to be coming out this year. I'm really excited to to show you all what what we'll be doing. And in particular, I would like to thank Nicole and David, Dana, Chelsea, Starro, Jennifer, Eleanor, Natalie, Kirk, Hugh, Nora, Sam, Chris, and Hoss the Dog for your support. You make this show possible. And so does everyone for listening, because if no one listened, I probably wouldn't do this show, which is maybe terrible. Maybe I should be willing to scream into a void, but I'm not. I prefer talking to an audience, even though I'm actually just talking to a microphone in a closet. It's somehow the same or different. I don't know. I hope you're doing well, and I hope you continue to do well.